Uh, We find ourselves this morning in Romans chapter 8 once again. Romans chapter 8, and uh, we're looking at verses 29 and 30. We're in a little part of this section. We're called the keys to our security in Christ. And we're looking at five of these keys. We looked at two last week, and uh, we'll look at three more today. But I just want to read for us so we're all on the same page, Romans chapter 8. I want to begin in verse 28 down to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Brothers, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, wonderful, very intense part of Scripture. And last week we gave a lot of... Uh, kind of warnings that this is going to cause some, maybe some questions and confusion. And, and you know, at a certain point, you have to trust me when I tell you your mind is not big enough to handle some of these truths. You, they just, it is, just isn't. That's why God is God and we're not. Um, but throughout history, uh, this controversy has raged over the question of whether believers, whether Christians can lose their salvation. We talked a little bit about this last week, and there's a lot of uh, verses in the Bible that on the first read, you would look and say, oh, see, that that shows us that you can lose your salvation. And uh, we can't go into all those for time's sake, but if you're interested in that, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a wonderful commentary on Romans, and he spends over 100 pages on covering all these other uh, verses that people raise up and say, well, maybe this means you can lose your salvation, or maybe this means you can lose your salvation. What about this? And he covers all those in depth. But I just want to start off as far as our introduction this morning, and I I want to let us know that some of these passages are hard, they're difficult passages, and we're going to be going through some more difficult passages in Romans chapter 9 when we get there. But what's the method that we deal with difficult passages? When we come to them, where they're all through Scripture, but what is a, a good way to deal with them? And I, and I don't think this is in your uh, outline, but it's be up on the screen. When you come to any difficult passage in Scripture, here are some basic guidelines. First of all, interpret the more difficult text in light of the clearer ones. In other words, there are some certain things that, that Scripture says plainly, clearly. And when you come to that difficult text, you can't just say, well, that must mean this, even though it contradicts. Something that's very clear. So you want to interpret the more difficult text in light of the clearer text. Secondly, consider each text in its context. This is so important to understand when you come to studying the Bible. You know, don't play Russian Bible roulette. You know, don't, boy, God, speak to my heart. You know, and then you point your finger and hope God points to you something good. Um, You know, that's very dangerous. Because you could be pointing to a verse that you don't even understand what's before and after it. And you say, oh, this is how God spoke to me. Um, and, and you can get yourself in a lot of trouble that way. Uh, so we want to make sure that we consider each text in its context. And in light of the purpose and flow and the thought of the original author. See, so many times we want to take chapter and verse and we just want to say, well, this just applies to me. Well, it may not. You know, I mean, 
as much as I love Jeremiah 29, the plans that I have for you. I mean, I understand indirectly we can apply that to us, but who was he speaking of? He was speaking of the nation of Israel. He wasn't speaking to us. Now, does it speak to us? Does it encourage our hearts? Sure. Does God have plans for us? Definitely. But we want to make sure that we keep each text within its context. That's why here in this church, we study through the Bible. We study through, for the most part, books of the Bible. You know, last week, we looked at verse 29 a little bit. And you know, today, we're going to be looking at 29 and 30. And next week, we'll be looking at 31. And that's just the way it goes. And so it helps you to know what I'm going to preach on. And it also helps me to stay in the context, to stay in the lines of Scripture that God has drawn. I've tried to go to Scripture with my own little idea of a series and say, okay, I want to preach on this. Well, let's see. Here's my theme. Now, what does the Bible say about my theme? (laughs) That's backwards, beloved. We have to have faith and trust in God's Word. We have to believe that when we teach this holy book, that it is going to affect change in people's lives. It's not my slick outline or, or my words or anything that has to do with me. It's God's word is where the power lies. Thirdly, interpret individual texts in light of the overall teaching of Scripture on the subject, comparing Scripture with Scripture. This is just a sound Bible study principle. When you come to a text that maybe you're a little troubled with, stop and say, well, does the Bible talk about this anywhere else? Because if it does, what does it say there? And if it contradicts with what I'm trying to make this hard text, this difficult text say, then maybe I'm interpreting it wrongly. I'm interpreting it improperly. Um, And, you know, sometimes when we come to certain theological truths, um, some of the ones that we're looking at now, the idea that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, that he's called us, that he's predestined us. All those truths are difficult when you stop and think about it. Um, you can come to some very wrong conclusions if you try to make pure logical sense in your mind out of those truths. In other words, you know, when you align the sovereignty of God in our salvation and yet you take our responsibility. We sang a song this morning. We cry out to you. Lord, save us, right? Well, that's something the Bible instructs us to do. But the Bible says that before the foundation of the world, God chose those whom would be saved. Yes, it says that too. And you can see where those two truths, you could very easily say, well, if I believe this, if I believe that God chose everybody before the foundation of the world, then why do anything? Why pray? Why go out and evangelize? If God's got it all wrapped up, what's the big deal? And if you logically come to that conclusion, it's wrong. Because Scripture indicates that we should be doing those things. We should be praying. We should be evangelizing. We should be sharing the word with unbelievers. And just in case you think this this problem is isolated, just to salvation, just to this idea of, of being chosen before the foundation of the world... I mean, stop and think about it. I mean, if I asked you who wrote the book of Romans, who was the author? Paul. But it's God's word, right? Well, so did Paul write it or did God write it? You know, you, you, can, you can sit here all day and argue about it. 
Well, yeah, he wrote, but he wrote through the power of the Spirit. He was moved by the Well, yeah, so he wrote it. Well, yeah, but it's still God's Word. God's the author of it. See, that's, those are two truths that you can't put together. Um, when you stop and think about how you live your Christian life each and every day, who lives your Christian life? If you read certain verses of Paul, you would say, I do. I live my life. Paul talks about beating his body into subjection, right? About making it do what it doesn't want to do. I'm doing it, Paul. And yet, in Galatians, he says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Uh, But not really me. (laughs) It's Christ that lives through me. Well, which is it, Paul? Are you living your life or is Christ living your life through you? It's both. If I asked you, is Jesus God or man? Yes, <laughs> right? Well, you talk to a mathematician, either he's a percentage of some or he's a percentage. You can't have it something that's 200%. It doesn't make any sense. It's one or the other. Logically, in our thinking. Is he God? Is he man? No, he's both. What, was he blended? Is that what you mean? No, he's not blended. He's 100% God, 100% man. That's logistically impossible in our minds. But that's what it is. See, whenever we come to the things of God, beloved, sometimes we cannot get our minds around them. And sometimes people want to explain the harder text away and say, well, it doesn't really mean that. It means that, well, we can't do that. We don't want to do that. It's easier to explain the texts that seem to say that you can lose your salvation in light of the clearer texts that say you cannot, (laughs) rather than vice versa. And so our text here this morning shows and speaks of the security that we have in Christ. The security of our salvation. And it gives a overall theme here. Today, our salvation is secure because God originated it, he affected it, and he will complete it. God originated it, it began with him, he affected it, he worked it out, and he also will complete it. Now last week, we looked simply that God's eternal purpose is not ultimately about us but it's about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And that's what it says there in verse 29 at the end. It says, He foreknew, he predestined, well, why did he do this? So that we would be conformed to the image of his Son in order that. See where it says that? In order that. Well, Paul was saying, here's why God is doing this in you. (laughs) This is the reason. In order that Christ, he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And other brothers. In other words, he he wants Christ to be exalted above all. He wants him to be preeminent. It doesn't mean chronology. He doesn't mean physically firstborn, clearly. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says that God has exalted Christ and given him a name, which is what? Above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. See, either you bow now to Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
or you will bow one day to him as your ultimate judge. But trust me, you will bow. Colossians 1.18 declares that Christ is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. He's before everything. He had no beginning. He has no end because he's God. And so we looked at that last week, the purpose of, of our salvation. The idea that God wants to conform us to be like Christ bodily and spiritually so that Christ might be preeminent in all things. That was the purpose of our salvation. And then in verse 29, we also got into the progress of our salvation. And here's where we talked about these five keys that Paul draws out. And these five keys really deal with our past, our present, and our future. Last week, we covered the ones that deal with basically the past. Before the foundation of the world, God planned our salvation. He planned it. It says that he foreknew and he predestined us into salvation. That's what it says, clearly. As a result of those sovereign decisions made in eternity past, at some point in our lives, he's going to effectually call us. That's the third one that we're going to get to today. And the fourth one is he's going to justify us. And ultimately, he will glorify us. He will make us in the perfect image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the future, we will be glorified, fully conformed to Christ, who will be preeminent over all. Now remember, we said this isn't just about us. This is about Christ. This is about glorifying his son. It's all designed for his glory. In his sovereign purpose for the glory and the supremacy of Jesus Christ, this is so certain that our future glory with Christ is very certain, that we will be glorified one day. And we talked about how Paul didn't write about these truths, predestination and and the idea that um, the foreknowledge of God. He didn't write about these just so that we could debate about them. He was very practical in his writing. These people were going through hardships. They were going through problems. Many of you are going through trouble. You're going through hardships in your life. God wants you to know that, you know what, as verse 28 says, that because of his purpose, his plan to lift up his son, if you're his child, he's going to work everything in your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever it might be, for his good. And that good is that you will be conformed to the image of his son. That good is the idea that God's son will get the glory. Well, how can we know that this is true? We know that it's true because God's purpose is certain. This isn't something he just went willy-nilly, woke up one night and thought, hey, I'll make up this plan. No, this is something that he's planned out before all eternity before the foundation of the world. His purpose goes back to his decrees before the foundation of the world to save a people for his glory. And it reaches into all eternity, into our glorification. It's essential to see that salvation from first to last is totally, totally of the Lord. Totally of the Lord. I mean... If any part of our salvation were left up to us, you know what? It it would fail. (laughs) Let me speak about me personally. I know it would fail. 
It'd be in major jeopardy if it was left up to me, my own salvation. See, isn't it a wonderful thing to know that if you're saved, it's because God determined to save you and planned it from start to finish. I don't know about you, but that takes a load off. Our salvation, first of all here, is secure because God originated it. And some of this is going to be a little bit review from last week to catch everybody up. But just be patient with me. Our salvation is secure because God originated it. Bishop Mule, a theologian, said this. Not one link in the chain of actual redemption is of our forging, or the whole would indeed be fragile. Not one link in the chain of actual redemption is of our forging, or the whole would be indeed fragile. There's two parts here that we looked at last week of these five keys. The first one was that God originated our salvation by setting his love on us before time began. It says there in verse 29 that he foreknew us. For those whom he foreknew. It doesn't mean that God looked down through the corridors of history with his little binoculars and said, oh, Steve Converse is going to come to me, so I've got to choose him based on his choice of me. That's a real problem if you think that. It includes foresight. Foreknowledge does, as we looked at last week. It includes foresight. Does God know that I'm going to come to him? Yes. But not because of my own initiative. But because he is set in plan and purpose before all eternity that I would come to him. I mean, God knows what everybody's going to do before they do it because God knows everything. That's what makes him God. So you can't just isolate this idea of God looking down through the quarters of time and seeing that, that we will come to him and based on our decision, he's going to choose us. That's backwards. That's not what this word means. It includes that clearly because he does know that. But it also includes foreordination. Jesus said in John chapter 6, all that the Father shall, uh, has given me shall come to me. No One can come to me except the Father who has sent me draw him. Clearly, God is the originator of our salvation. John 1.13 says that Christians are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, the Bible says, but of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's It's a gift. What? Faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Saving faith comes from God. This isn't something you just give birth to one night because you had a fancy pizza the night before or something, you know, and you had a dream and, oh, I think I'm going to get saved tomorrow. No, this is something that God purposes in your heart. The Bible clearly teaches that God sovereignly chooses people to believe in him. Thirdly, it also included, we looked at this in review, for love. The idea that God foreknew us means that he loved us in eternity past. That word is often used to speak of a love relationship in in the Bible. It's also, which I thought was interesting, it's used in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Let me read this verse for you because it was kind of interesting when I looked at this. This, this word foreknowledge, it says, speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus, it says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan 
and foreknowledge, same word, of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, if you read that verse and say, well, I guess that means God's foreknowledge is, it simply means that he's looking into the future and he saw what Jesus was going to do and, and Jesus acting on his own prerogative and how he was going to act and what he was going to do and then, and then he caused it to happen. No, that's heresy. You can't say that. God is the subject here in verses 29 and 30 of all these verbs. He is the one taking the action. And the action of his foreknowledge is not simply that he knew in advance what people were going to do. In that sense, he foreknows everything, everyone. Rather, he chose, the Bible says, to set his love on some, and he predestined these to salvation. I mean, there's a lot more references to this, but just for time's sake, we don't have time. Listen to the message from last week. But Paul's point here, he's saying that God foreknew us and that he originated our salvation by choosing to set his love on us before the foundation of the world. Secondly here, God originated our salvation by predestining us to be conformed to the image of his son. Again, once again, this is just kind of review from last week, but predestination is God's purpose and plan to rule his universe as he determines. I mean, there's some folks building a house across the street from us right now. They basically tore the old house down and they're putting up a new house. And I was talking to one of the the guys one day and he said, yeah, we had, you know, boy, this is a real undertaking because they're their own contractor. So they're bidding everything out. And and it's, man, he goes, you know, the plans say one thing and then the contractor says, no, you can't do that. You got to do this. You got to change the plans and you got to have them altered and you got to go through all this. I said, yeah, wouldn't it just be nice to be able to pay somebody, throw a bunch of wood and nails at them, hey, build me a house. <laughs> and walk away and you come back in a month and you got a beautiful house. I go, that's not how it works though, is it? No, it doesn't work that way. You have to have a plan. You have to have a purpose. God in eternity past determined. He follows the plan. Thankfully, our salvation is part of God's plan. And that plan is to glorify through his son, to glorify himself through his son, who have first place in everything the Bible says. As we read this morning, verse 11 in Ephesians 1, in him we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. If we want God to promise salvation, then we must be content to let him predestine it. Because predestination in his determination and commitment to fulfill those promises is what keeps our salvation going. And we talked about last week that our salvation is not primarily about our happiness Although hopefully because we're saved, we're happy, we're joyful. We have the the forgiveness of God through Christ. What a wonderful thing. Each new day is a new slate. But God predetermined to save us so that his son, it says in verse 29, would be the firstborn among many brethren. That means that Christ will have supremacy over all the redeemed. Um, And I think God loves his his son enough not to allow his future glorification in the, the hands 
of people who are rebellious and people who want to exercise their own, quote, free will, even though they're sinful. See, if our salvation is bound up with God's purpose in exalting his son, then you can guarantee that it's a sure thing. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son so that, we would, so that he might be the firstborn to have preeminent over all. God will not fail in that purpose. Well, today, I want us to look at our salvation is secure because God affected it. This covers the last three of these five keys. Um, the word affected it there means that he's going to make it happen. He's going to carry it out. Uh, he mentions two aspects of this. First of all, God affected our salvation by calling us. It says there in verse uh, 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, he conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he what? He also called. God affected our salvation by calling us. See, here is where God's eternal plan in eternity past intersects with our life. This comes to real time, present time. In eternity past, he predetermined to have a love relationship with you. Therefore, he predestined your salvation. The calling is the time when God moves in your life, present. And now we come into our present time. We've been in eternity past, but now we're in time. And this is really the central truth here. The first two preceded. The last two flow out of it. He says here clearly that we are called. We looked at this a little bit when we looked back at verse 28, that God works all things together for good for them who love him and are to them who are called. And I just want to remind you that there's, there's two aspects of calling in Scripture. There's first the general call, which we might call the outward call. What do I mean by that? Well, Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, if you look at that verse, Jesus mentions this when he says to the crowds of people, many are called, but few are what? Chosen. Many are called. Many are hearing the call of salvation. But not everybody is going to respond in the affirmative. If you don't believe me, just go out and share your faith. <laughs> go out and start sharing the gospel with people. And you'll understand that very clearly, very quickly. Over in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he issued a general call when he said, repent and believe in the gospel. Who is he talking to? Everybody. That's a general call. That's a call that we give to everyone. That's outward. That's, that's something that, that everyone needs to hear. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, when Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What is that? That's a general call. This general call is genuine on God's part. But it's not effectual. <laughs> because the hardest of hearts in our, our human race will reject it. Will reject that general call. Those who refuse the gospel call will be without excuse on judgment day. 
That's the general call. And I know there's a lot of questions going on in your head right now, but we'll, we'll get to those. Secondly, the second kind of call is an effectual call. It's an effectual call or an inward call. This is the call of salvation. Now, whenever in the Gospels, you might see one or either one of these. But in the epistles, whenever you see the word call or calling in the epistles, in other words, uh, you, know, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, from then on, all the epistles, everything after John, it's always the effectual call that's mentioned. It always accomplishes God's purpose of giving life to a spiritually dead person so that they can respond to the call of the gospel. Um, Spurgeon, he described it this way. If you ever grew up in the Midwest or even in the East, in the summertime, sometimes you'll have real hot days. It's kind of muggy. And at night, you just have these clouds, but it doesn't rain. And you get what you call sheet lightning. And sheet lightning goes horizontal across the... You know, you don't really hear anything. It's just this lightning. It doesn't strike the earth. It just goes across vertically. And, And Spurgeon says this. He compares the general call to sheet lightning that lights up the night sky, but it doesn't really hit anything specific. It's just up there, boy, it lights it up, boy, but it doesn't hit anything. But the effectual call, he says, is like the lightning bolt that hits its target. Boom. See, that's a good illustration. We can see the example of God's effectual call when Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb. In, in John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, uh, Jesus had just said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then the raising of Lazarus that followed was this unforgettable illustration of Jesus' power to, to really call the spiritually dead to spiritual life. It was a wonderful illustration. And when Jesus called outside of Lazarus' tomb, Lazarus come forth. It was a specific call. He imparted life with that call. So that Lazarus responded. I mean, if Jesus would have been there in the graveyard and he just said, come forth. I mean, we would have a problem. Everybody would have came out, okay? But he had to be specific. He used Lazarus' name. God's word is powerful to create new life. We see that in John chapter 5, verses 24 and and 26. James chapter 1, verse 18. Paul refers to the same truth in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, when he says that Satan, the God of this world, listen, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Their minds are blinded. They're spiritually dead. How can spiritually blind people ever see? They can no longer see than someone who is dead can get up and walk out of a grave on their own. It's not going to happen. Paul explains in in verses uh, 6 of their chapter 4, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts, listen, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See, God's word powerfully imparts light and life to all whom he calls to salvation. 
See, that's why an effectual call cannot fail. It cannot be thwarted by sinful, fallen wills. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. There's no wiggle room there. God's effectual call always comes, though. This is what you need to hear. God's effectual call always comes through a general call. What do I mean by that? If you don't go out and share the gospel with people, they're not going to hear the general call of salvation. Somehow, God uses us in the process of salvation to go out and proclaim the gospel so that people will be saved. Or are those people chosen before the foundation of the world? Yes. You see where the logic begins to set in? Then why do we have to go out if God's got it all wrapped up, right? But see, he always works through the general call. How can they hear unless there's a what? A preacher. We're all preachers, beloved. You may not come up here and stand behind a pulpit every week, but you're a preacher with your lips and with your life just as much as I am. What is the message we're sending to a lost and dying world? The gospel is preached and it's proclaimed to all. That's the general call. Some shrug it off. Some angrily resist it. Jesus even went on to say in some of his parables that some may even respond to the call of the gospel gospel superficially. So they respond maybe for what's in it for them. Maybe they raise their hand or they say a little prayer or they go down an altar. For a while, it looks maybe they're converted. But they're like the seed sown on the rocky ground that springs up quickly but has no root. They may may respond to the general call of the gospel because they want God to get them out of a fix they got themselves in. Maybe a problem situation. Maybe they got something going on in in their life. And they're crying out to God, save me, help me. But when the suffering comes and their problems grow worse, what happens? Their faith goes out the window. They fall away. They were never saved. They're like the seed that's sown on thorny ground where the worries of life or the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word so that it does not bear fruit, Matthew 13. See, but God's elect, the effectual call, comes with power so that they are quickened from spiritual death to spiritual life. It is a genuine thing. Their eyes are opened to the glory of Christ. Their eyes are opened to what he did on the cross for them. And they respond in faith and repentance. They turn from their sin and they turn to Christ. The difference between those two responses hinges on God's effectual calling those whom he predestined to salvation. Since that was God's plan before we were even born, he will fulfill it, working out all things toward that good end. God's call comes to us through the gospel. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, 14, it says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And he says this, To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He calls us through the gospel. 
That's why we believe in missionaries. That's why we go out to a lost and dying world sharing the gospel. We don't know who's going to be saved and who's not. That's not the point. The point is to be obedient to God's command. So we're saved through the gospel. We're also saved by grace. It's very clear. God calls those he calls to Christ through grace, by grace. I mean, don't sit here this morning and knowing that you're a believer saying, well, I must be pretty special. I must be, I must just be it. You know, I'm God's gift. No, you're nothing. I'm nothing. It's by grace that we're saved. We weren't even around when God chose us. There was nothing about us that was in existence. Well, why did he choose me? I don't know. Why did he choose you? You don't know. See, these are some of the truths that we want an answer to and we're not going to get. One small hint, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes this, God predestined us to the praise of the glory of his grace. So there is a purpose behind it. For whatever reason, God chose us for himself so that he might receive the glory. Galatians chapter 1 verse 6 says, He calls us into the grace of Christ. We are called to salvation through the gospel and by grace. Well, God affected our salvation also by justifying us. The third or the fourth truth here. He foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us. And now it says, these whom he called, he also justified there in verse 30. Now we studied this out in, in Romans 3 and 4, and you can go back and get the messages on this. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But we saw when we did Romans 3 and 4, that we are justified by God's grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. And justification means what? What's it mean? To be declared what? Righteous. To be, to, to be declared righteous. Justification is God declaring you righteous. Well, that's pretty nice. No, I, I didn't say you were righteous. See, there's a difference. If you were in a courtroom, somebody robbed you, and you went before the judge... And the criminal was there, and the court proceeding ended, and the, uh, it was about to end, and the criminal said, yeah, you know, I ripped off his, his wallet and stole his money. And the, the judge said, you know what? I declare you innocent. You're free to go. You couldn't do anything. That judge is declaring that person who's not innocent, He's declaring them righteous. He's saying, you know what? You're free to go. That's what God does. He does it based not on the goodness of the criminal or the goodness of us. He, based, he does it based on the goodness of his son and on the payment that Christ paid that we deserve to pay. But we don't have to pay it because God, through Christ, already paid it. That's why Jesus went to the cross. God declares righteous all who trust in Christ. So don't start getting yourself feeling pretty good about yourself. I'm chosen. I'm, I'm righteous now, man. No. That's not what we're saying. 
Matter of fact, the, the word of God says that God chooses the what? The base things. The things that are on the bottom shelf. The things that nobody else wants. He chooses them. And he chooses them because, you know what? He's going to get the most glory when he turns something like that around. When he can use someone like you or someone like me for his glory. Man, that's, that's crazy. You'd never even dream of that. You know, that, that really is a, a key point to understand of being used in God's service and in his ministry. It's not about you. It's not about me. I mean, if it wasn't for God's grace, I'd have nothing. I don't have nothing to share with you. If I take this book away, what am I going to say? I'm just regurgitating what God has already said. We, we don't need to think more of ourselves than we ought to think, brothers and sisters. Our faith does not in any way merit justification. It doesn't merit it. You hear people say, well, you just got to have more faith. Even if you had more faith, it wouldn't be faith enough. Faith is a channel through which God's free gift is received. When you hear the gospel that someone died in your place on a cross for your sins, and you acknowledge that you have sins, that's the first part. You acknowledge that you're not some perfect person that never does anything wrong. No, you, you've got some baggage. We all have baggage. We'll call that baggage sin. And because we got that baggage, we got that sin, we can't stand before a holy God. That, that sin is causing a rift in our relationship with our Creator. And because God loves you and wants to have a relationship with you restored, that's why his son came to die on a cross. Because he was the perfect God-man. He was perfect in every way. He never did anything wrong. He never did nothing wrong. He was perfect. If he wasn't perfect, he couldn't be God. And if he wasn't God, dying on a cross wouldn't do us any good because he'd just be another person like you or me. There's people that die on crosses all the time. There's people from Catholic background, man, they'll crawl on their knees for miles and they'll get crucified at Easter time thinking, you know, this is somehow earning favor with God. Not true. But Jesus did it because he was a perfect sacrifice. And it's by that faith that God gives to us that we come to Christ and believe in that. You notice here in verse 30, he doesn't mention faith. Because he's emphasizing that salvation is from the Lord from start to finish. You know, your salvation doesn't really have anything to do about your faith. You ever think about that? Kind of, kind of weird when you stop and think about it. Because you think, we think, well, no, it's all about faith. Well, no, no, not really. I mean, and the faith that we do have is faith that God grants us so that we can believe. So it's all God. God's effectual call to salvation results in spiritual life or spiritual regeneration. And the first evidence of that new life, that faith is in Christ, the first evidence through which the sinner is justified. They're justified. They're declared righteous. Those who are justified by faith inevitably begin to grow in holiness. There's a change in their life. What do we call that? We call that sanctification. 
We call that God working out his plan in our lives to make us more like Christ each and every day. Sometimes it's fun, sometimes it's not. But God has his way, he has his plan. Paul does not mention sanctification directly here either in this five-fold chain. For the same reason, he doesn't mention faith because we play a part in our sanctification. We have to be obedient. And Paul was emphasizing that salvation is totally of the Lord. Paul alludes to sanctification there in verse 29 when he says we're being conformed to the image of his Son. And sanctification obviously isn't understood when we talk about glorification. That's the next step here. Not only are we justified, we're declared righteous before God, but our salvation is secure because God will complete it. We don't have to complete our own salvation. Amen? What a wonderful thing. Can you imagine if God said, okay, Steve, from this point on, you live 19 years, you're 19 years old, you came to me for salvation, all of your sins for the last 19 years are forgiven. Now march on, brother. And if you sin again, you're dead. If you sin again, you're going to hell. I mean, what do you want from me? I gave you 19 years. I I paid all this for you. You can't figure out a couple years to live in a sinless way? To get into my heaven? I mean, think if God were to say that. We would be completely undone. We couldn't, we couldn't last a minute, a second. And so it, it, our salvation is secure because it's God who completes it. And this is summed up here in verse 30. He says, those whom he justified and those whom he justified, he also what? What's it say? Glorified. You notice there that Paul puts this in a certain tense. It doesn't say, notice, it doesn't say, and he will glorify us. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, no, those whom he called, those whom he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. Not will glorify. He glorified. It's a done deal, is what Paul is saying. And that's what God is saying. See, that's the hope that... Romans chapter 5, verse 2 speaks of when Paul says, we exalt in hope of the glory of God. If, if this salvation were left up to us, beloved, there'd be no hope. It'd be nothing but misery day after day, trying to figure out how you can keep yourself from sinning and, and falling away and, and losing your salvation. I mean, I never understand people that do not believe in eternal security and call themselves Christians. I, I can't get my mind around it. I mean, how do they sleep at night? How do you do anything? You, you would have no hope. If somehow your salvation depended on your, your sinless perfection. In Romans 8, verse 18. or uh, Yeah, Romans 8, 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. God will complete our salvation by glorifying us, first of all. And to glorify means that he will completely conform us to the image of Christ. I mean, think about that for a couple minutes. You're going to be like Christ. You're going to be free from all sin. And positively like Christ in his holy 
character. Now, don't carry this so far as to say, oh, are we going to be gods? (laughs) No. There's some people that teach that. There's some within Christianity that teach that, let alone the cults. But we're going to be like Christ in our character. We will be like Christ. Well, when does this glorification take place? There's a sense in which it begins at salvation when we begin to be transformed into the the image of God's Son from glory to glory. But it's not going to be completed in this lifetime. We cannot be completely glorified until we receive our what? Glorified body. So you got to check out of here to get it. Or you got to wait for him to come back. Um, there's another sense in which we will be glorified when we die. Our spirits, when we die right now, where do our spirits go? Our spirits go to be what? Be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Where does your body go? To the grave. All right? So if you died right now, you're a believer and you went, you'd go to heaven. You'd be with, with Christ. But you wouldn't take your body with you. All right? And the, the Bible is very clear that when Christ returns, he will unify those souls that are in heaven with the physical bodies that are in the earth. Some people say, well, that's why you need to be buried. You know, because if, if they burn you up, how, how's God going to resurrect the body? Look, God created the body. I mean, I don't care if you cut them up in a million different pieces and scatter them over the four corners of the earth. Somehow God is going to bring that body back together. It's, it's kind of irrelevant when you think about it. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly, look at what he says, wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What's he going to do when he comes? He will transform the body of our humble state. This is, this is it. The body of our humble state. With the body into conformity with the body of his glory. By the exertion of the power that he has even to the sub- subject all things to himself. First John chapter 3 verse 2 says it this way. We know that when he appears, we shall be what? Like him. We'll be like him. And we will see him just as he is. See, the glorious return of Jesus Christ, that's why we anticipate it. That's why we eagerly await it. It will result in instant, permanent glorification for all believers, both the living and the dead, as we all receive new glorified bodies. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. Get rid of this heap of trash and get a new one. No more aches, no more pains, no more concerns. You know, it's going to be a wonderful thing. The second thing here, God will complete our salvation because God, Christ will be glorified by glorifying us. And this goes back right back to verse 28. Jesus will be the firstborn, the preeminent one among many brethren, as the Father through him brings all uh, these many sons to glory. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about that. Second uh, uh, Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10 says, When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, Verse 14, it says, It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the, 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 kind of the, the culmination of the gospel of Jesus Christ will be the glorifying 
and our sharing in his glory. He will be the firstborn. He will be the preeminent one among many brethren. I mean, trust me, if God's purpose is to glorify his own son, Jesus Christ, whom he loves very much, then our final glorification, because it's connected to his, is secure. Now, you might say, you know what, I just, I can't get my mind around this. I don't understand this. And you might have a lot of different questions. That's fine. I have a ton of questions about this stuff. I mean, if God only sent his son on some, set his love on some, and predestined only these to salvation, then does he not love everyone in the world? Is that what you're saying? Because last time I checked, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Right? Conflict. But there is a sense, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, where he set a certain love on his bride. I mean, you know, as the congregation here, as your pastor, I can tell you I love you as brothers and sisters in Christ. Love you very much. Pray for you often. Concern for you. But I also say that doesn't come near the love I have for this woman right here. Who's my bride. Doesn't even come near it. I'm just being honest. And I know all you would say the same thing about me. So that's fine. See, that's what it's about. And that's what God, I mean, God loves, God loves the world, sure. But you know what? He set his love on some. Well, if God is only going to save those whom he predestined to salvation, why do we even want to pray for the lost? Because prayer is part of the means that God uses to save his elect. That's it. That's the answer. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. I know it doesn't make sense. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 to 4. We cannot know in advance whom God has chosen. It's not like the chosen run around with a yellow streak down their back or a, a big C on their forehead. Chosen, you know, witness to me, please. But when people respond to, gospel with, to the gospel with faith, resulting in changed lives, we know that God chose them for salvation. Before they responded, we should pray that God will open their hearts to the gospel. Well, if God is going to save all whom he has predestined, then why should we evangelize is another question. Evangelism is the same answer as prayer because God ordained it as a means to saving his elect. He chose to use us in the process. Why? I don't know, but that's what he did. I can think of a lot more efficient ways to save the world than using people like you and I. Or if salvation is totally of the Lord, then is there anything that an unbeliever can do to be saved? Good question. What if he's not part of the elect? I would just say this, while all of salvation, including the repentance and the faith to be saved is of the Lord, he commands us to repent and believe the gospel. The Bible exhorts sinners over and over again, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. 
That's a promise that you can take to the bank if you will simply turn to him. Joel chapter 2, verse 32, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And since faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17, then those who have not trusted in Christ are responsible to hear the gospel preached and to read the Bible to learn how to be saved. I know there's a mystery here, and I know that you have questions. I have the same questions. Because sinners are unable and unwilling to seek God unless God is first drawing them to Christ. But at the same time, they're responsible to repent and to believe in Christ. They can't blame God for not calling them. It's so important to make sure that you understand that. The reason that we're saved, we're saved for God's glory. And you say, well, then you mean all those people who go to hell, go to hell because God didn't choose them. And I say, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. Well, if they go to hell, the Bible says they go to hell because they're rejecting the good news of the gospel. They're rejecting the only one who can forgive them, that being Christ. And you say, that makes no sense. And I agree with you, it doesn't. (laughs) But I'm so much... I'm so glad to say that, you know what, God is a lot smarter than you or I. And if if we could understand the mind of God and the ways of God, that would put us on his level. I don't want a God who's equal to me in any way. So all I know is that the Bible says that if I reject Jesus Christ, I'm responsible. But if I come to Jesus Christ, it's because I'm chosen in him before the foundation of the world. In either way, God is receives the glory.